it's time for Coffee with Scott Adams. And I know you've been deprived a little bit. I, I left you hanging for a few days, had to do some traveling. I'm over here in Santorini, Greece. It's uh, five o'clock in the afternoon where I am, but is that gonna stop me? Not today, not today. Today the simultaneous sip will come off without a hitch. I'll tell you a little bit about Santorini, in case you want to come in. And then we'll talk about the news. Yeah, the news. But first, the simultaneous sip. Because I know you want it. And believe it or not, I actually had to Google it. Because <laughs> I do it, I literally do it every single day. But uh, the way my brain uh, handles memory is I only, I only remember concepts. So I can't remember phone numbers and specifics and names and anything in its proper order, but I can remember a concept forever. But if you'd like to enjoy the simultaneous sip, then why wouldn't you, really? I mean, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. If you'd like to enjoy it to its maximum potential, all you need is a cup or a mug or a glass, a tanker, chalice, a stein, a canteen, jug, a flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure. The dopamine here of the day, the thing makes everything better. It's called the simultaneous sip. And it happens now. Oh, it's so much better when you skip a day, doesn't it? The ketchup sip, yeah, it's that good. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Santorini. Um, I've been doing some... Uh, humorous content on the locals platform, subscription platform. But I will tell you, the, the, uh, the staff here are terrific. The, the, all of the service is great. And uh, somehow, one of my favorite foods is a Greek salad. But if you eat a Greek salad in the United States, you get one of these uh, tomatoes that have been gassed. It doesn't even taste like food by the time it gets to your plate. But over here, there's a 20-day period in Santorini where their, their own tomatoes uh, grow on the vine. And when you eat those in a Greek salad, they actually call it the Santorini salad here, it's the most amazing thing you've ever had in your life. So a lot of the food is terrific. A lot of it is stuff I'm not used to, different kind of seafood. So, so it's a little bit hard for me to eat over here, being a pescatarian, oddly enough, being on an island. Uh, but uh, we're having a good time and had a terrific tour today, and it's all good. And thank you, all of you, for uh, being uh, patient with me while I take some time. So, let's talk about the news, eh? Oh, I have to tell you this, this one little story about uh, Santorini. So, have you heard of uh, the legend of Atlantis? Of course you have. Some kind of a advanced civilization that was, you know, uh, lost somehow. Well... The locals believe that Atlantis was here because there's a, one of the islands here, or one part of the island, uh, was covered by volcanic ash, I think 4,000 years ago. And weirdly, there was an advanced society that lived here 4,000 years ago. Now, when I say advanced, I just toured the, some of the recovered uh, ruins where they had, and I'm not making this up, 4,000 years ago, they had advanced 
uh, cutting and engineering, and we're building sophisticated towns. And here are the, some of the things that their town had, again, 4,000 years ago. This is sort of like pyramid times, right? Somehow they could cut blocks perfectly, so they had metal tools. But uh, their homes were three stories high. They were building three-story homes, personal homes, and one of them, for somebody rich, had a toilet on the third floor. <laughs> Some rich guy. Uh, you know, basically, it was just a place to sit with a, with a hole that went into a public sewer. That's right. They had public sewer system underground 4,000 years ago, and some rich guy was pooping in a hole that was going right into the sewer. That's cool. I mean, for that kind of thing. Apparently, they were traveling to Africa on boats, so they were doing navigation and everything. And the funny thing is, there are no bodies. So, big old earthquake. Uh, I think it was the biggest one on the planet. I believe it was the biggest eruption ever at least in, in modern times, or uh, not modern times, but in recorded history, I guess, biggest one ever. And, uh, but they didn't leave any bodies. And so the thinking is that there were earthquakes that preceded the volcano uh, for a long time, and it was knocking down their homes, and they, they decided to get out of there because they were pretty smart. They knew the whole place was, was doomed. So it looks like they got out. Like, every person got out, and, and then their place got destroyed. But they, the thinking is that that's the source of the, uh, the Atlantis uh, stories. Maybe. It did fit. They were unusually sophisticated and had real technology, uh, which, is, which is amazing. All right, that's enough of that. Oh, and the, the other cool thing they did was that the city was sort of had a, a downhill slope all the way to the ocean because it was, it was on the shore. And they built their stone homes so that the roof would catch the water. They would run down a gutter, and then the gutters would run into the streets and wash the streets. <laughs> the streets were actually stone paved. 4,000 years ago, they built a sophisticated city with paved, I don't know what you'd call it, not paved, but uh, the same way you'd put rock down, flat rocks, and then the, the rain gutters were pointed at the streets and would wash the streets automatically when it rained. <laughs> the, the, the other thing, uh, yeah, not cobblestones, actually, just bigger flat rocks, just like you'd see in somebody's patio today. Uh, the, the other thing is that this is like the Galapagos Island for plants. So apparently they get basically no rain here, and they don't have a local source of water, so they have to, they have to ship in their water or else collect it from roofs into cisterns and stuff, and there's not much of it. So the, the tomato plants that grow here are like these little tough tomatoes that don't need water. <laughs> they actually grow tomatoes without water. They live, the tomatoes live on uh, fog. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. And they have like little special cucumbers that are like half zucchini, half cu cucumber, and they, they do too. They also grow a bunch of grapes here, but the grapes also don't have a source of water and it's too hot for grapes. So what did the grapes do if they don't have any water and it's too hot? They evolved into the leaves of the grape spines. They, they grow them on the ground, so they don't have trees. They're, they're like bushes on the ground. They're all over the place here. But the bushes form a protective covering for the, the grapes that grow internal to the, to the plant. 
and these and these are also not watered. <laughs> they grow on fog. They're making wine from fog. So these are the things you learn when you travel. Anyway, let's talk about the news. Hey, what about that? So here's a little, uh, let's say, let's call it propaganda. Let's call it uh, manipulation. It has to do with, so Biden's uh, White House National Security Council, uh, this is according to the Fox News report, released its strategy after the intelligence community, back in March, released its comprehensive threat assessment. All right, so you got this intelligence community is figuring out what the domestic terrorism threat is, right? And they come back with their report, and they found that uh, domestic violent extremism posed a heightened threat in 2021. So domestic violent extremism. You don't see any white supremacy in that, right? Just domestic violent extremism posed a heightened threat. Now, have any of you ever worked for a big company or any big organization? And have you ever had your boss say to you, all right, here's the answer that I want you to come up with, or maybe you just know what your boss wants to hear. And you're trying to give your boss the answer they want, but you don't, you can't do it honestly. So you find some way to say it like it sounds like what the boss wants, but it's not really wrong. It's just not really exactly true. And listen to this weasel wording here. Um, so what does it mean to say there's a heightened threat of domestic violence? Well, somehow a heightened threat, which means literally nothing. What does a heightened threat mean? Does a heightened threat mean the statistics show there's more of it? No, because a threat is something that hasn't happened, right? So there are They didn't say we have uh, more domestic violence happening at the moment, although maybe that's true. What they said is it's the biggest threat in the future. Who really knows the future? But let's say, let's say they're professionals and they did the work and they can, can see the threat. Somehow the Heightened threat turned into, by the time it went through the Biden administration uh, ringer, it turned into national securities officials warn white supremacy, suddenly that's introduced, militia violence present, quote, from the Biden administration, present, quote, the most persistent and lethal threats. So you'd expect a statement like that to be backed up by a bunch of statistics, wouldn't you? Nope. <laughs> nope. And what does it mean to be the most persistent threat? What makes something persistent? Would you say that uh, Islamic um, extremist terrorism is persistent? Or is it sort of spotty? And does it make a difference? <laughs> does it make a difference if you're if your terrorism is uh, sort of consistent or it comes in big, big bunches, like, well, there hasn't been much for a while. Oh, 9-11. Well, it hasn't been much for a while. Oh, this. Does it really matter if it's persistent versus a little less predictable? And Right? It's sort of a non-word. It's, it's sort of a bureaucracy weasel word. Now, this is a red flag that something is going on here. It's not <laughs> when you start seeing the weasel words, 
every flag in your head should go off and say, somebody's lying to me about something. I don't know what, but they wouldn't use those kinds of words. They would just tell you. Now, where are the statistics? Where's the part where they say, we think this is the biggest threat. Let's show you what we're looking at. Look at these statistics. Or even maybe our undercover people have found this out. We can't give you the details, but trust us. You know, we've dug into this, and we know this is big. I mean, I would listen to that. I'd be skeptical, but at least that would be a reason offered. But what does most persistent even mean, and does it matter? Don't you care about just the amount, right? Would you say, oh, uh, 10,000 people died yesterday from a terrorist attack, but I'm not too worried because the threat wasn't a persistent one, right? It's literally a non-word in this context. Um, and then they say, and the most lethal threat. Again, lethal threat. How do they know what's going to happen in the future? What is their source of knowledge about the future? These, these are all bureaucracy weasel words that sound exactly like somebody's trying to make their boss happy without lying too badly. Am I right? Can I, can I get an opinion from, from people watching me? When you hear things like most persistent and lethal threats, that feels like just an opinion, doesn't it? That doesn't feel like a fact, even if it is a fact. It's, it's written in the form of somebody who's trying to, to fool you, even if they're not. Um, so I would watch out for that. That looks, I would say that this effort, the way it's presented, is thoroughly uh, illegitimate. And it might even be true. That's the weird thing. What if it's true? You know, what if somebody could produce some data that you and I would look at and say, oh, okay, I didn't realize it, but that looks pretty bad. Maybe. But I think that they would lead with that, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they lead with the facts? Because they like facts. Wouldn't they lead with the science? They love science. But if they leave out the facts, mm, there's something else going on. Well, there's a report of a Chinese nuclear plant leak. Here's everything you need to know about that. Don't believe anything you hear <laughs> that comes out of China. That, that's like rule one. Where, where did the uh, story come from? China. Okay, now disregard everything you heard about it, because it's probably bullshit. Right? But let's say it's true, because I believe the information came from uh, vendors so I don't think it came from the government. But uh, China continues to be the most toxic country of all time. I suppose America was pretty competitive there. But at the moment, everything that comes out of China seems to kill people. Fentanyl, viruses, uh, radiation, pollution, theft, threats. So uh, toxic China. I think that should be the new brand. Toxic China. They're just toxic. You should stay away from them. And indeed, I've suggested that we should pull our diplomatic, uh, we should pull our, our diplomat down. We should just uh, drop diplomatic relations with China until they at least stop sending fentanyl our way. At least, right? That's the minimum buy-in for a conversation. And, and I think we should just make a stand and say, look, you know, it's one thing to be a competitor. 
but you're killing us right in front of us. Like while we're watching, you're just murdering tens of thousands of Americans, and we're doing nothing about it. Send the diplomats home, all of them. Send all of the diplomats home. They can still reach us. We have phones, right? Like if something important comes up, China knows where to call. It's not like we won't talk to them. But let's make a point of it, right? Do you think that China could stand the embarrassment of having their ambassadors sent home until the fentanyl situation is, is fixed? Nope. No. That would be a, a face, what's the, you know, a face shaming of all time. It would be devastating, in my opinion. Now, I don't, you know, I can't read the minds of the Chinese public, but if, if America won't even let your diplomats into the country, you need to figure out what you're doing wrong, right? We need, to, we need to send the message that we can't respect you, period. And we need to say it directly. China, we'd love to work with you, but honestly, we don't respect you one bit while you're killing our people. Don't expect us to smile about it. Here are your diplomats, plane tickets or whatever. Uh, pack your bags. When you decide to become members of, let's say, civilization, let's talk. In the meantime, you, you have our number, but we're not going to let your diplomats in the country while you're killing us. That's crazy. And I don't believe there's any precedent, is there? Is there any precedent for countries that are literally at war to have active embassies? Can, can anybody who knows history better than I do tell me, is there a modern precedent where embassies just stay open and operating in the two countries that are literally at an active war? Maybe there's some example of that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so that's China for you. Um, but if you're worried about how big that problem will get, um, my, my guess is that China doesn't have any old generation reactors, or at least that this probably isn't one of them. And I don't think that they have um, the same risk of meltdown as a Chernobyl that was just really rude rude technology. <laughs> I was going to say rudimentary, but I stopped at rude because I like that word better. Uh, so uh, we don't know much about it, but I wouldn't expect a meltdown. Uh, did you see the video of Jill Biden humiliating her husband at the G7? It's hard to watch. So the setup was Biden was walking past some, some of the G7 folks, and he was just done talking to them. And he was on his way to, you know, I guess his limo and his entourage. And somebody shouts out a question. And he stops to answer the question. And Jill Biden just shut it down. Like she just went to get him, you know, told him that where he was going, grabbed him literally by the hand, and took him out of that situation. And I got to tell you, it didn't look good. Yeah, I, I saw the comments saying he looked lost. I didn't, I didn't see the looked lost part. I mean, that didn't show up to me. But he did look like somebody whose wife told him what to do, and not in a cute way. You know, not in a way where you say, oh. Ho, ho. You know, my wife's really the one in charge. You know, the old sexist thing people would say. Not like that. Like, she actually looked like she was a caretaker, and it did not look good. Now, you saw the... And, and then the other G7 people or the people there were laughing because of that little interaction when, you know, 
when Biden's wife uh, basically ordered him around. And I don't know if they were really laughing at him or with him or with her or if it was really the leaders who were laughing or you could just hear it. But it wasn't good. Whatever, whatever that was, it wasn't good. And I don't think the United States is stronger because of that, the G7. Does anybody think that? Does anybody think that, that the United States came in out of the G7 looking good? doesn't feel like it. Now, I'm not going to say that uh, you know, uh, anybody else did better, but wow, that was, that was hard to watch. Uh, there's also a video where Macron and Biden got into some kind of a uh, social distancing violation contest. You have to see this. Now, I do understand that the French allegedly, I mean, I haven't experienced it, but apparently the French uh, like a little less social distance when they're having a conversation, get a little close to you. And you know, Joe, Joe Biden is a uh, your personal space violator too. And it looked like they were having some kind of a, chicken contest to see who could be the most uncomfortably close. So their faces are like this, and they're touching each other and grabbing each other, you know, practically dancing. And then at one point, you're watching them from the side, and Macron is, is making this kind of motion right on Biden's chest, like, like Biden had, uh, let's say, mammary glands, and, and Macron was giving him a, giving him a go. Now, I was terribly disappointed to see this video. And hours later, still no memes. People. People. If there ever, ever was something you should meme, it's Biden and Macron talking like this. Come on. Do I have to write the joke? Do I need to do it myself? There's a whole meme industry out here. And it suddenly just missed this one. Gotta, gotta take it up a little bit. Take it up a little bit, please. So, I'm wondering if I'm gonna get deplatformed for this. The big risk for somebody like me, if you've been watching my content for a, a long time, you know that I go out of my way to avoid violating any social media rules of service, terms of service. And I don't believe I ever have. Um, you know, maybe the worst I've done is curse a little bit more than maybe they're comfortable with or something. But even cursing is loud. You don't get canceled for cursing. Yeah, maybe I do more than I should. But that's not really the kind of thing that's going to necessarily get you kicked off a platform. But here's a, here's a gray area. So I retweeted some content um, by Revolver, the publication Revolver. And... Uh, this was the title of the content. Uh, America's rotten academic establishment vomits out more demented anti-white rhetoric. Now, the point of it, the point of the opinion piece there, is that things are more anti-white than they are uh, Marxist. You know, it's more about hating white people, per the opinion in the article, uh, than it is about any kind of uh, economic adjustment, and. Facebook, I'm told, I haven't verified this, maybe you can, that Facebook won't let you share that same content. But I did tweet it. So, I've now tweeted something that possibly, I need a confirmation on this, but reportedly, 
you couldn't do on Facebook. How did I know that? I mean, I found out after the fact. But could I have known that this opinion, which to me looked completely legitimate, showed his work, gave his opinions, I don't think he insulted anybody. I, I didn't see any reason for a terms of service violation whatsoever. I mean, I didn't see anything there that would be a problem. But did Facebook really kill it on their platform? Maybe. If they did, Calimera. If he did, uh, am I this close to getting deplatformed on Twitter? Because if it's banned on Facebook, it's got to be pretty close to banned on Twitter, right? They do have different standards, but they're not worlds apart. More like 20% apart, I think. You know, just off the top of my head, it feels that way. So am I, like, right on the edge of getting a warning? How would I know? If I can't tell by looking at the content, and I'm trying to be a reasonable person who's you know, trying to be a positive force, I'm not trying to be you know, the, the fire thrower who just takes every, you know, uh, every rumor and runs with it. I'm trying to be reasonable and practical, but it looks like I'm this close to getting canceled, completely accidentally, just because I can't tell by looking at it what kind of content will be banned. And it doesn't seem that knowing the terms of service of anything would make any difference because I don't think the platforms use their own terms of service consistently to ban stuff. Uh, Yes, my bland titles do help. (laughs) I I think we've determined with some certainty that the title itself uh, gets flagged somewhat automatically by keywords. So if you leave the keywords out, it won't get banned uh, by, by the machines. It would have to get banned by human, which I consider a, a fairer, a more fair system. At least I'd rather have a human judge me than a machine. Uh, even if they judge me wrong, I'd rather have a human judge me. Uh, so did you see the clip of the uh, Fox 26 Houston TV reporter, uh, Ivory Hecker, who... Uh, who turned on her own management uh, during a live segment that wasn't about that. She she just decided to uh, throw her management under the bus for refusing to let her report the truth, apparently, or at least her version of what she thinks is the truth, and actually told the public on the air, live, that she was being suppressed and that uh, she she supported uh, Project Veritas. I don't know if she's still working today, but that was about the gutsiest thing I've seen in a while. So uh, congratulations to uh, Ivory Hacker. And I don't know, you know, am I going to agree with her opinions or whatever it is that caused her to, to turn on them? I'm not sure I would. I mean, I don't, I, don't know that, uh, I don't know that we can conclude that Fox News did, or it was just Fox, just Fox, I think. I, I don't think we can conclude that Fox did anything wrong. I mean, we don't really know that. But I just love, I love the, I love the fight. <laughs> I just love somebody take the fight. Uh, you just need people like that. I hope she's right. So, uh, Kyle Becker had a uh, interesting tweet. You should file, follow Kyle Becker. And he, he did a, a reframing of something familiar that I loved. And I tried, to, I tried to take that idea, his idea, and extend it a little bit with a little 
little more persuasive technique. And you can tell me how I did here. So here's what part of what Kyle said by tweets. It was more, more in the thread, but uh, here's the interesting part. He said, uh, quote, white people don't control schools, tax codes, and business districting in inner cities. Democrats do. White people don't cause soaring crime rates in urban areas. Democrats police policies do. It's time to hold Democrats accountable for their failure to black America. And I read that and I thought, that is almost perfect. So I tried to see if I could fix it a little bit. Oh, there's a reason my audio is imperfect. Because I didn't have this on. How's that? I'll bet that's better. Um, so the, here's how I tried to, to improve on that framing. Uh, instead of saying that white people are the problem, which is something that we're hearing said out loud, uh, every time you hear or see an article that says white people are the problem, agree with it and say, yeah, you're right. White Democrats, they are the problem. And here's the case to be made that white Democrats are in fact the problem. And it goes like this. Who is it who controls the urban areas? Who is it that controls the school boards? And the school boards, I would say, would be the biggest, the biggest issue. The, the school boards, uh, of course, are obviously black members of school boards. But by and large, I would say it's the white Democrats and their school boards who are the biggest source of systemic racism. And one way that you can tell that Black Lives Matter is not a legitimate organization, meaning, they're, meaning that their stated goals, they're not pursuing. <laughs> that they must have some other objective, or the leaders do, because there's really low-hanging fruit here. Uh, black Americans largely favor improving schools by introducing competition, allowing people to choose a better school, get a voucher, you know, a variety of, of competitive solutions. But who's taking the fight? Who takes the fight? Um, who takes the fight to the teachers' unions? It's the Republicans. If if Black Lives Matter was even a little bit interested in solving any problems, i.e., doing the thing that they say they exist to do, even a little bit interested, they would notice that there's an easy win here. Just join up with the Republicans on the one thing that you agree with completely and make it happen. Do you think if Republicans and Black Lives Matter said, look, we got a lot of things that we disagree on, but not the main thing, not the most important thing, because if you fix education, it doesn't fix things right away, but you're one generation away from a complete transformation for poor people of all types, not just black Americans. But if you don't get the educational base you know, right for everyone, every time, and I mean every, every time that's going to go, if you don't get that right, you're just going to always have gigantic disparities and outcomes, and it's never going to get fixed. So that's how you can tell Black Lives Matter is not a legitimate movement because it's just such a low-hanging fruit to just say, okay, Republicans... On this one thing, we're going to team up with you. We'll get that done. Then we'll go back to fighting on the other stuff, which would be fine. Like, why not take the easy stuff? Because it's not a legitimate movement. That's, that's the only reason. Uh, I can't imagine another one. 
Uh, that's not to say there aren't other reasons, but I can't imagine one. If anybody, anybody has a better imagination, let me know. So, so here's the uh, persuasion play. It used to be, hey, white people, you're the problem. And then white people, especially Republicans, say, that's racist. Did that work? Hey, white people are the problem. White people say, hey, you're being racist. It doesn't work, right? <laughs> like Nobody can hear it. Nobody cares. But how about this? Hey, white people, you're being racist. And then you, if you are a white person, would say something like this. Yeah, I'm right. White people are racist. I've, I'm, I've been saying this about Democrats for a long time. Can, can we team up? And maybe do something about all these racist Democrats who are ruining your school systems? Can we work with you? I think we ought to go after these white racists. <clears throat> you think white supremacy is a problem? Let's go after the people who are perpetuating it, the school boards, or not the boards, the, the teachers' unions. Let's go after the teachers' unions, and we'll take on white supremacy at its base. I'm with you. Let's do this. Black Lives Matter. I also think that Black Lives Matter is the weakest... I've said this before, but I, I can't say this enough. It's the weakest and yet most powerful um, slogan ever made. It's super persuasive in terms of getting attention, that sort of thing, recruiting, etc. Really persuasive. But it's such a low, a low goal. It, it, do, you ever, do you wake up in the morning and say, today, I'm going to matter? I mean, it's kind of a low bar. How about thrive? How about, you know, you know, get everything you want. Mattering is important, but I don't think that's where you focus. So here's a success tip for you. Whatever you focus on is what you're going to get. That's how the world is organized. And I don't mean in like a magical, the secret affirmations kind of way, although maybe there's something to that too, if reality is a simulation, as I imagine it is. But if you say our goal is for people to say that black lives matter, you've, you've set, literally, you've intentionally set the lowest standard. Why? There, there's nothing that would keep you from achieving a higher standard, is there? Why would you shoot for the lowest standard? And by the way, is there any white person you've ever met who doesn't want black people to do well, get good jobs, stay out of jail, don't get addicted, all the, all the things that make a life good, fall in love. Anybody? I mean, the, the, the solutions are right in front of us. It's obvious that the leaders are not interested. Um, did you see Marjorie Taylor Greene's, Representative Taylor Greene, uh, Republican? Probably all know about her. She's, she's really good at making news. <laughs> I, I was about her because she's a little too crazy for my tastes, but at the same time, much like AOC, she has game, all right? There, there's something real that's powerful, and I, I don't think I could see it in its fullness until this latest story. So apparently, uh, Representative, uh, do you say Taylor Green or Green? Because she uses her middle name. What's the, what's the right way to say that? So Representative Marjorie Taylor Green, just to keep it appropriate, um, apologized for her remarks, her remarks saying that the way the, the virus was being managed by the government was sort of like the beginning of the Holocaust. 
she said. Now, what she meant is that the mask mandates and maybe something about the vaccinations was a, was a little bit you know, too authoritarian and you know, suggestive of bad things ahead. But using the Holocaust as a comparison to anything is always a mistake. You know, of course, we all do it, right? <laughs> is there anybody here who hasn't, hasn't compared something to Hitler or the Holocaust? We all do it. But at the same time, especially if you're an elected representative, you have to know it's not a good idea. Now, reportedly, she privately visited the Holocaust Museum, which sounds a little bit like somebody who's managing their political career. And she did something that is uh, fascinating. One of the best apologies I've ever seen. And apparently she's famous for not apologizing. She usually doubles down. So what she did that's kind of brilliant is, you know, one of the best ways to make news, and man, can she make news, one of the best ways to make news is to establish a pattern and then violate it. You, you see celebrity news all the time is somebody was overweight for years but then lost a bunch of weight, right? So create a pattern and then violate it. it that's how you create news. And so she creates this pattern of the person who never apologizes, and then she pulls off legitimately one of the most competent and well-done apologies. It looked completely sincere. Who knows what's on the inside, right? We're not mind readers. But if the apology is presented in a way that is taken as sincere, it's pretty good, right? Who knows what people are thinking, but we can't manage that part. And here's a, here's a specific sentence I picked out. She said this early on. She said, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, she, she mentioned her comments. And then she said this right from the top. She said, quote, I made a mistake and I want to own it. That's good. That's good form. I made a mistake and I want to own it. Those are the two things you wanted to hear, right? I mean, besides the apology itself. You wanted to hear that she said with no qualifiers. She didn't say, I kind of made a mistake. She didn't say, well, I was thinking this or that, or, you know, in my head I didn't think it was so bad, or you're, you're overreacting. A million things you could have said. A million ways you could have done it wrong. So she reached into the big universe of the million ways you can do this wrong and, and picked the best way. That doesn't happen by accident. You know, it's suggestive of either a whole bunch of talent um, that we're starting to see emerging through you know, some provocation that, that may be partly theater. Um, we're seeing some real game. And I don't know if it was just something that somebody advised her of, because you could imagine that somebody would be a, like a, you know, an advisor for exactly this kind of stuff and say, here's what you do. I'm going to tell you what to say, just memorize it. Here's what a perfect apology looks like. And then did she just sort of execute it perfectly? I've never seen anybody look more comfortable apologizing. She looked completely comfortable owning it. And don't you love that? Don't you love somebody who just says, complete mistake, I want to own it. Now, think about that word want. She didn't say, I made a mistake, I'm going to own it. 
I believe, unless I wrote it down wrong, I believe what she said is, I made a mistake and I want to own it. Didn't have to, wanted to. That's perfect. That's perfect. And she, has, and she said some other things that were equally good, but I just wanted to call that out. So that's what's happening. Um, <laughs> yeah, and apparently she, as she said, she spent some time at the Holocaust Museum, and it gave her sort of a, maybe more of an emotional connection to it that is important to understanding anything, really. And when she got an emotional connection, she says that was enough to just say unambiguously it was wrong, and she wants to own it. I like it. Um, how many of you want to see the view from my deck? Anybody? Anybody? I know you do. We're going to go outside. You ready to travel? Come with me. Put on your sunglasses. It's going to be cool. Now, I did find out that there's a, there are local building and zoning, um, basically building rules, that require, the, require all the buildings here to have small windows. So if you build a luxury resort in a, in a place where you want a, a great view, you're not allowed to put a big window there <laughs> because historically their architecture was small windows because they, did, you know, they wanted to protect against too much heat. But even if you have a luxury hotel that has all the air conditioning in the world and is willing to pay for it because they, you know, they charge their customers, they still can't put a big window in it. They have to have these tiny little windows. <laughs> so let's show you what this looks like. All right. Pretty sure I can turn this around. All right, so here are the tiny little windows. But let's look at the good stuff. All right, here's a, what they call a plunge pool. So that's just if you get too hot. Jump in there. It's sort of lukewarm water. It's not a hot tub. And here's what things look like outside. Here's where I do my little laptop work in the morning. Here's uh, some neighboring resorts right here. And I learned that this formation used to be a, uh, what they called a castle. Not a, not a typical castle, but it was a fortified defense against pirates. So apparently, uh, and all of its, all the homes that used to be on this rock here have gone away, but apparently piracy was a gigantic problem here. And so uh, the pirates would come in and basically just kill everybody and take everything. So they learned to build like a little fortified place. And when the pirates came, they would run up there and, and stay there until the, until the danger passed. Now, here's some interesting stuff. You see this whole lagoon here? This is all the top of a volcano. So these islands form sort of a, a semicircle ring, which is the top of the volcano. And then the water, exactly where I'm looking, all this water, is actually the top is. This island right in the middle is uh, lava that I think, I think it's the 1950s was the most recent uh, 
uh, eruption there. So you can see the different colors of the lava for the different ages that the, that it happened. And so that's uh, that's just the newest eruption. So allegedly the eruption that happened here, however many years ago, was the biggest in the world. I don't know how they know that. And I believe I was told that today was the first day that cruise ships are allowed back. Um, first day. Uh, the Greek people are tough, really tough. And you can hear them talking about their relief that their economy is finally opened. And as our tour guide, who took us around the island today, told us, um, the reason that Greece opened up early, or earlier than maybe a lot of European countries, is because they were starving. Um, and they don't say that with a smile on their face. So things were really tough here. And today, and really this week, is the people on Santorini, probably Greece in general, finally, finally, getting some relief. So the economy is bouncing back. We, we don't have nearly as much um, tourist traffic as you might expect uh, if this were a regular season. Uh, the masking situation is kind of interesting because the locals, anybody who's getting you know, paid for any touristy kind of job, uh, they're all wearing masks all the time, indoors and out. And I believe the Greek law requires that. Uh, however, the tourists <laughs> pretty much have dispensed with their masks entirely because we're all tested and vaccinated anyway. And you couldn't come here if you weren't. And so you've got this weird dichotomy where the, the Greek um, workers and residents are all masked up everywhere and all pretty much, I would say, close to 100% of the tourists uh, threw their masks away when they, they left the airport. So uh, we, you end up with this little dance where you, where you have to negotiate you know, the mask wearing, but uh, for the tourists, it's a pretty good situation. All right, I'm probably going to climb up this hill tomorrow or so. Okay, um, you got any questions? I'll just look at your comments. I wasn't looking at them today. Going to get rain today? They, they say maybe a sprinkle, which is apparently somewhat unusual. It's uh, unusually cold here, they say. It's about 68. Well, um, we, we changed our room because we had a... Uh, we had a suite, but we uh, wanted a different layout. It's a long story, but they, they were nice enough to uh, relocate us and we're quite happy now. Like I said, the service here is spectacular. This is the, uh, the, the Grace Hotel. It's one of the newest ones, I think. So I would say my primary complaint is just the Greek building regulations. They should, they should uh, loosen that up a little bit. All right, that's all for now. So I think I'm going to... Um, oh, there's a comment here. This Scott, I think you're wrong about the Fox reporter. She's whistleblowing to Project Veritas on Fox, not supporting them. Well, if she's whistleblowing to them, she's supporting them that way. So, But I'll, I'll take that correction. Did the doors open in the new room? Yes. The, the mechanism that was uh, hard to use in the other space 
uh, is a different mechanism on this door that works easily. So yes, uh, all problems have been solved. All right, and that is your simultaneous sip for today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will talk to you tomorrow.